Unfortunately, resources are limited, even in times of crisis. Many humanitarian aid budgets have either been slashed or under pressure from governments the world over. And in the context of a world of post-pandemic austerity, demand for funding certainly outstrips supply. Limited supplies, vaccines, and skilled personnel mean that modern humanitarian responses rely on data to make sure they're allocating scarce resources in exactly the right place to the people who most need them. These data-based responses must evolve and adapt in real time as situations can rapidly shift and evolve practically overnight. Not to mention the fact that many of the worst impacted areas are often underconnected, undermapped, or remote. I'm Will McCurdy, content editor of National Technology News, and to discuss these issues, as well as some possible solutions, I'm joined by Hannah Kerr and Alan Mills from Geospatial Charity Map Action. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you sparing your time today. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So just for all listeners, could you just briefly introduce, just for the uninformed, what Map Action do and maybe what the roles are of in the organization? Yeah, sure. Uh, Map Action is a UK-based charity that believes that applying geospatial expertise to humanitarian situations can greatly improve the outcomes for those people affected by disaster and emergencies. Humanitarian crises are increasing and they're becoming more complicated, it seems, both natural disasters and complex uh, emergencies involving migration and conflict. And the need is outstripping the resources available. So we actually see that expert geospatial and data analysis can help stretch resources for maximum impact. The charity is about a team of 100 people or so. Uh, They're spread right across the world from HANA in Canada. We've got a Caribbean team uh, and we've got people in Europe, UK, of course, and across to New Zealand. And three quarters of them are expert volunteers in various uh, geoscience, data and and other scientific expertise. And we collaborate with partners around the world to help anticipate, prepare for and respond to humanitarian emergencies. Um, With 20 years of experience and and learning from so many different humanitarian emergency situations over the years, we've got a great expertise. It's quite a unique and, and continuously requested range of capacities that we have but we're developing new technologies and approaches to ensure the data, the maps and the tools are essential in humanitarian crises are made available as quickly as possible, even prepared for ahead of time. And myself, I've been a volunteer for over 16 years and for about 10 years, I've been what's called the preparedness coordinator. And this was a realization amongst the charity that the external environment needs preparing so that we can hit the ground faster with better quality data and tools to pass on to the responders. In those few days early on in a a disaster, that's particularly important. So my role is to reach out to new partners and sustain existing ones to work together, identify new data sources, technologies, mapping groups who can support map actions work and other aspects. And we're increasingly looking at anticipation and influencing uh, strategic work to improve data sharing. Hannah, do you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thanks, Alan. Um, So I'm Hannah. I'm the data scientist at MapAction. And this is a relatively new role to MapAction that we've had for the last year or so. And what I do is is generally working to build capacity within MapAction to do more data science work and supporting projects to to help the humanitarian sector be better prepared before a disaster or a crisis hits or to support 
um, anticipatory action before a crisis or a disaster takes place. Um, so I work with a variety of data sets uh, and data sources, which I'm sure I'll discuss later on in this conversation. And actually half of my time is spent with another organization as well in the humanitarian sector with the predictive analytics team at the UN Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, the Center for Humanitarian Data, which is based in The Hague. And so you know, through my role, building a strong collaboration between Map Action and the Center for Humanitarian Data and supporting work on anticipatory action pilots, um, which I'll also get into later on in this conversation. So thank you. No, uh, thanks for that. I mean, really what, one of the most impressive things I thought about the organization was how do you manage to accomplish all of these things globally with so many people working part-time pro bono and uh, managing their roles within other organizations. And that's maybe something I'd like to get into a bit later in the podcast, just uh, how they're organized so effectively. So could you briefly talk about a humanitarian incident which Map Action has recently been involved in? and how a data-based approach informed a response? Well, generally speaking, you know, data is at the heart of every response we do. Without data, we can't inform people about what has happened, where has been affected, what are the areas that are needing assistance, uh, and then monitoring that assistance as it goes through. So we gather that data from a wide variety of sources. The sort of back base mapping like you have on a sort of a, a paper sheet map that we, we would use in the field, uh, baseline population maps, health status, critical facilities. And then also when you get into the field, getting data about people doing assessments to find out what people need after a disaster, tracking the logistics that are being implemented, and then using novel sources like remote sensing and increasingly social media and big data feeds to sort of feed into that. So we're actually doing what we call a data scramble, which given that we're doing this very rapidly, it is a bit of a scramble to grab as much data as we can to get it on the laptops of the volunteers who are gonna be going out to the response. But what we realize is that if we prepare that in advance with templates so we can gather information on the fly once at the scene, but also having more data in preparation before we go out into a mission, that can be really, really important. The large number of data sets can be useful, but the priority still has to remain to understand the humanitarian needs. Just because you have the data and technology, it might not be uh, the important data you want. For rapid response in particular, it needs timely information to support quick decision making. And coming back to your original question about a recent couple of responses that we have done, we did a response in St. Vincent, but doing it remotely with a team based in both the Caribbean and, and New Zealand, being able to get hold of information on the ground was actually a massive challenge. And it was quite a data poor response for there. And we had a similar experience in Equatorial Guinea with the blast explosion that you may remember reading about a couple of months ago. And uh, I think we still have to improve that connectivity between the remote teams, particularly in COVID times, and that situation on the ground. And just one other issue I'd, I'd bring up from another response last year was the Beirut explosion. Uh, we did get a team out in the field, but it's making sure that in an urban situation where the systems are very complicated, people are living at very high densities, getting that granularity of data so that we can compare people affected by the disaster more than others or have a better coping capacity, we can actually target aid much, much more to those who need it the most. Thanks. Thanks for that, Alan. 
So just linking in to the points that you just made. So at my action, action, you presumably need to collect data from a wide number of very different sources together. What type of challenges do you face while doing this? Yeah, um, thanks. I can start off and maybe touch on some of the, the more technical challenges and how we're approaching this. As Ellen was mentioning, we do have, yeah, quite a variety of data sources that we use. And while the data that we work with is quite consistently geospatial, even within that, we're looking at a ton of different um, file formats or data models and schemas. And so this can be very challenging for us, especially as we're often working in contexts where we need to, to act very rapidly and to work quite quickly. So for the disaster response mapping, we want to be able to acquire this data. So things like the admin boundaries, population density layers, road networks, uh, points of interest really as quickly and as effectively as possible. And a lot of our work over the last year has been to try and create automated pipelines to ingest and process this data. But yeah, as I'm sure isn't surprising, this is quite challenging when you know, we're pulling in uh, data from places like official statistical agencies, online crowdsourcing projects, uh, from partners on the ground who we're interacting with. And so it's really hard to have kind of consistent and reliable data, especially across you know, over time and within different countries and geographies. And we also struggle with, with data quality quite a lot and are trying to get better at systematically understanding when data is or isn't good enough for our use cases. Um, and we also have to be particularly sensitive in humanitarian contexts when there can be very little data available, we might kind of work with data that's perhaps of lower quality than might be appropriate for other situations, just because in many ways, some data is better than no data. And kind of in terms of the pipelines that we're building, our current processes are really a combination of manual and automated work. And we're trying to shift to be more automated and to, for example, write code that's generalizable across, across different sources of data but as I said, this is challenging when data models change, when the data sources that we turn to can change. And in some cases, when the data that we want or need just isn't available. I think as Alan mentioned, a lot of the, the places that we work might, might just not have available data. For example, we're really interested in understanding and communicating vulnerabilities of an affected population after a crisis, but this is understandably quite challenging data to collect. And so we have to do a lot of work with, with local organizations to try and get, get access to this kind of data and use it responsibly. Thanks for that, Hannah. I th think you've sort of answered my next question, but I was just wanting to go into a little bit more detail about how you would best serve countries that are underconnected or politically unstable and simply might just not have the data which is needed in the first place to do the modeling. Because you, you mentioned a lot of very interesting, to me at least, alternative data sources, for example, social media, crowdsourcing. What sort of strategies might you employ in a less than ideal on the ground situation? Yeah, I think perhaps before addressing this, it's also worth saying that 
And data quality challenges aren't unique to humanitarian contexts, and it is something that, for example, governments and civil society organizations all over the world struggle with in collecting and disseminating high-quality data about their populations and infrastructure, for example. But that said, of course, we do often work in contexts which have very little data. And so, as you say, we turn to alternative sources of data uh, that can be particularly helpful in these contexts. So, for example, a really common one or quite a popular one in the humanitarian space is a data source called OpenStreetMap, which is kind of popularly referred to as the Wikipedia of maps and is a global crowdsource project whereby local communities contribute geospatial data or effectively map the area around them and contribute data to this large global database. And this is particularly valuable in humanitarian contexts because local stakeholders and remote volunteers can often contribute data where there's literal that's already existing. And local populations are also empowered to map their communities and provide more granular data than might otherwise be available. And remote volunteer communities can also be mobilized in the wake of a disaster and trace satellite imagery and provide quite up-to-date data about things like impacted infrastructure or destroyed buildings. But I think, I mean, as many people I'm sure are familiar with in the case of Wikipedia as well, the quality of crowdsourced data or crowdsourced content can be ambiguous and can be quite challenging to evaluate. And so this is a big area of work for us now, and we're collaborating with the Heidelberg Institute for Geoinformation Technology in Germany to try and adopt various data quality metrics for OpenStreetMap that have been explored in academic literature for our mapping needs. And so on one hand, this is kind of a technical challenge in how we can process and, and compute indicators for large volumes of data for example, about the road network for an entire country. But it also kind of is baked in a lot of non-technical challenges and requirements for us to really explicitly define our mapping products and their use cases. And as Alan was speaking to a little bit earlier, this requires us to really clearly understand the context of our work and engage with our partners and stakeholders and understand their requirements. Yeah, and I, I'd just like to come in on, on the side that it's not only technology, but the people we work with that's important. And, and one particular arm of this at the moment is we're increasing our engagement with what's called civil society organizations, the massive voluntary sector, working in local communities and across different nations and actually delivering a massive amount of aid and support to, to people affected by uh, emergencies. And increasingly, in COVID times, they are the only people that have been able to get on the ground. So we would like to get them more involved, become more data literate and uh, understand about how to manage their data and, and understand how to use information management to capture the work that they're doing and share that with the wider community. So we're, we're really trying to, to reach out to that to get a, a much fuller picture of the affected area of an emergency and how operations and, and uh, aid is being delivered on the ground. And I think the, the other thing about those people are that they're the eyes and ears uh, sensitive to local issues, who understand the diverse range of cultures, the markets, other systems, particularly in cities, and coping capacities in the country. And I think, you know, trying to find ways of capturing that data is going to be really important. That just adds that sort of personal part of it, as well as the technology solutions. So 
when it comes to humanitarian aid, would you say that having a crowdsourced or open source approach, do you think that's something that's going to be key moving into the future? Yes, I think that's one angle of it. And I think also I've been mentioning civil society organizations in the terms of they're the ones delivering the aid, but there is also lots of entrepreneurs and technical specialists in these countries now who are developing their own systems and understanding who they are, what their capacities are and and, and what systems they use and trying to integrate that within other data flows is also really important. Yeah, I'll just jump in there as well. I think just state that the point of openness is something that's really important to us and really, really enables the work that we do. For example, most of the data that we work with is data that's available openly through websites, through open data platforms, and we really wouldn't be able to do the work that we do without open data. And in addition to to being open about the data, we also are trying to be as open as possible about the workflows and the methods that we use. And we really want to make these reproducible for other people working in this space so that we don't have to duplicate work. And we want people to learn from mistakes that we make. We want to learn from mistakes that others make and really collaborate as a sector. So I just wanted to wind the discussion back slightly. So Hannah, you mentioned the issue of data quality earlier. So I just wanted to touch on how would you deal with false or incorrect data in the mapping process? For example, I remember in London a few years ago, there was false reports of a terrorist attack in Oxford Circus, and it was really amplified by social media, which you said was one of the things that you were looking at in your organization. So is false data something that could potentially have a negative effect or is it just uh, the more the merrier from a data standpoint? And apologies that there's no easy answer to that. Yeah, yeah, it's a tricky question, but it's an important one as well. I mean, I think that there are lots of different ways that data can be false or data can be of low quality. And if we're talking about data that is kind of maliciously false, That's thankfully not something that we frequently encounter, or at least that I'm aware of us encountering. I think what what we encounter more often is data that's in some ways right and perhaps in some ways wrong. And so, for example, if we're looking at a road network data set, we might find that it's offset slightly by a couple of meters in one direction. Or if we're looking at a data set of points of interest for, for an affected area, we might find that some hospitals, for example, or some healthcare infrastructure is missing. And and the first challenge is really identifying this kind of falseness. And we we ideally do this by referring or cross-checking with other data sources. So if we have data, for example, from, from one place, two data sets of hospital locations for the same place, and we notice that there are discrepancies, this is a bit of a flag for us in terms of low quality. And I think... Yes, unfortunately, there's no good kind of tidy answer to how we deal with this. And it's something that we're working to improve and be more systematic about, but it's also something where the local context that we're working in matters a lot. And the specific problem that we're trying to solve or use case that we're addressing really informs how we approach these kind of problems. Yeah, I just like to emphasize that two points there. One is that triangulation of data sources uh, and particularly with the St. Vincent response with the volcano, because we didn't have people on the ground, we were using Facebook to look at videos and reports of things like bridges being 
uh, moved out, communities being cut off. And having local knowledge is the other fact that if you've got people that know the area, they can say whether the uh, report is, is true, the video is in the right place, was it taken at the right time? You know, you can even tell things like, was it raining at the time? Was it sunny? You can use those sorts of things to triangulate that information quite well. So triangulation and local sources is a good way of verifying data as well. Yeah, that, that local knowledge must be truly integral in uh, situations like this. So just moving on, could someone potentially talk about how data science could be used to allow plans to be made or funding to be provisioned before a crisis even breaks out to predict future disasters before they happen? Yes, happy to talk on this. This is um, really directly touching on a lot of the work that I do in collaboration with the Center for Humanitarian Data uh, at OCHA. And so this work is supporting what they call anticipatory action pilots. And the idea with this being that if we can accurately predict or use forecasts to understand when a shock will occur with enough lead time, so for example, a month or 15 days before we think a crisis will occur, if we can then release funding and trigger a series of mitigation activities and actions to reduce the impact of the upcoming crisis. And so from a technical perspective, a lot of the work that I've done is understanding how to use various forecasts, for example, water level, level forecasts along key river basins, precipitation forecasts, to predict the likelihood of an upcoming shock, and then to inform how we want to trigger the early release of funds to help reduce the impact of this upcoming event. And this really is a big mindset shift for the humanitarian sector, which has traditionally acted mostly in response to crises. Um, and I think getting back to perhaps more of a technical perspective, the challenge for us in this work is really understanding how certain forecast levels correspond to significant impacts to local communities. So for example, we've been analyzing historical streamflow forecasts for the Shire River in Malawi, which is very sensitive to flooding. Um, but from the data that we have, we see that increased streamflow doesn't necessarily correlate with more impactful flooding in a linear way. And this makes it challenging for us to find the right streamflow level at this forecast where we want to trigger the release of funds. And when designing trigger mechanisms based on forecasts, we also need to account for the variable quality of forecasts, which can vary significantly by geography. And for example, in some places, they significantly over or underestimate true streamflow levels. And so this is kind of an area of lots of active work within the humanitarian sector and where I think a lot of people are looking to go in the future and data science and really effectively making use of data that we have available is a key factor in enabling this. And just to quickly add on to that, uh, my understanding of anticipatory action is not just about the trigger mechanisms for releasing funds through early warning, but it's also that there is pre-positioning of stock and actually distribution of age to people before an event happens. And but trying to be as accurate as possible as the scale of the impact is going to be so important for that. But in actual fact, we can use many of the tools and data that we use after a disaster has occurred, before the disaster, monitoring the flows of aid or services to, to different communities. And also, again, looking at the local resources 
available through these civil society organizations that could be in situ ready to deliver aid once the event has actually occurred. So having that all mapped out beforehand is also really useful. So just linking into the last question, how would your organization deal with novel threats like COVID-19 at the uh, beginning of last year, for example, where the disaster's behavior and its patterns are hard to predict and plan for, and people don't necessarily know how it's going to develop because it's so unfamiliar? Yeah, I think another tricky question with no clear answer, but it's probably worth stating that most of the disasters that we respond to or the crises that we respond to are unique because the way that, for example, flooding or a hurricane will impact a local population varies so much by geography and by local context. And so consistently in all of our work, we need to be able to adapt and to learn quickly. But perhaps an interesting example of this and work that we've done is a project that we did in collaboration again with the Center for Humanitarian Data and also the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab in the last year to create a COVID-19 model tailored to humanitarian contexts and to inform humanitarian operations. And so because of the very quickly changing nature of the COVID-19 pandemic, one of the key lessons from this work was that shorter term projections of COVID case rates really are the most helpful because key model parameters such as the reproduction rate will change really quickly. And so longer term projections aren't necessarily helpful or accurate. But I think generally stepping back, we need to expect that humanitarian crises will become more complex and more intertwined over time. So we, as I said, need to be, need to be expecting this kind of thing moving forwards and need to to know how to adapt. I mean, maybe I can pick up on a point you made earlier on is about how does Map Action deal with this with a fairly limited set of volunteers with very precious time. I think we've always taken a very agile approach to being able to be uh, able to be flexible for the different types of responses we have. But what we have built up over the years is a large cadre of experts who can give us the best advice within the volunteer pool to solve problems. And we have standardized over the years the way we actually operate. We have a series of procedures that all the volunteers are trained on. And we all know about that. We all have that visibility about how we should be sort of interacting with each other. And by simplifying all the routine stuff into something that's, that's just sort of you can pump out like a, a production line, it gives us more space to think about those problems that are novel and need agile sort of considerations. So I think that's how we deal with that. So moving on. How important is uh, inter-organizational or intergovernmental cooperation when it comes to mapping? What type of problems do you face when it comes to collaboration? It's absolutely vital. Uh, Map Action wouldn't survive unless it had partnerships with people who want our services and our, our knowledge. And it has to be said that, you know, you look back to when Map Action was first started, we were really the only kids on the block doing this kind of mapping and data collection when the response was actually happening. And now there are many organizations who have their own information management capacity. They have data scientists and specialists. And in actual fact, you might think that might improve the situation, but as the number of players gets bigger, it can actually confuse the situation more. So it's really essential that we try and make those systems interoperable so that the data sharing is easy, 
and that when you collect data, you're doing it to similar standards, so you can be cross-compared across different regions and across different organizations. And we do that in so many ways nowadays with several types of agencies who play that role. So first of all, there's all the United Nations organizations who are the linchpins in coordinating particular types of aid. So shelter, food and nutrition, logistics, health, water sanitation, several others. So we meet with them regularly at a coordination level and they're trying to target our products to fit their operations. And if you look at our website, you'll find something called the example product catalogs, which demonstrates that. And there are other international mechanisms such as the Red Cross Red Crescent family that have their own established data management systems. And we continue to try and be interoperable with them. And then we've been increasingly engaging with regional agencies who are also doing disaster management. So there are these organizations such as the Caribbean Disaster and Emergency Management Agency in the Caribbean region, another agency in Central Asia, and a third that works out of the ASEAN cooperation, which is the ASEAN Humanitarian Assistance, uh, AHA. And we're working with them because they're the ones that are supplying services and support to national disaster management agencies, so the governments. So this is this intergovernment cooperation I was talking about. And on the other hand, there is another UN initiative which is supporting mapping agencies within governments. So they're the people that might be providing a lot of the good quality data government that we can trust. They're the trusted partners and we can link that back to disaster management. I've mentioned the CSO and particularly in the civil society area, organizations such as OSM HOP who are providing data on the ground, missing maps, various crowd mappers, both the armchair geographers that are sitting at home interpreting satellite imagery to, to build those basic data sets, but also people in local areas who can document from ground surveys is, is really important as well. And what we're trying to do is reach out to all the communities and organizations that are trying to support disaster, make them much more data literate and, and understand good data governance. And that helps to try and triangulate some of the constraints of data usage and to avoid the confusion and possible really poor duplication. You know, when we've got limited resources, we shouldn't be really reproducing data and reproducing products that somebody's already done. I think one of the things with the COVID response is the plethora of uh, COVID dashboards that were available, but they're basically sitting on the same data sources and we need more strategic thinking. Because the people who are using that information, they want to go to one place to find the information they need, and they don't want to be getting confused by several different sources. So that's, that's really important. Yeah, and that flows really well into my next point, Alan. So I just want to talk about some of the difficulties other organizations faced over the past year when it comes to giving humanitarian aid uh, while adhering to COVID-19 restrictions and social distancing and how mapping falls into all this? Well, I mean, more generally speaking, the initial shock of COVID around the world led to a dismantling of a significant portion of the international systems that are in place for long-term programs. That, that sort of initial month or two when we were all locked down, many international organizations withdrew their staff, programs were curtailed, money was moved into fighting the COVID response at a national level, and other disasters, which you must remember were still going on. For example, there was Cyclone Harold in Vanuatu that did a huge amount of damage there, but very few people could reach the islands to help them out there. It meant it was very difficult to sustain programs or respond effectively. And also the logistics of getting aid into countries when it was needed 
that was blocked by several border closures across the world in that period. So it was a struggle for everybody. And as I said before, national agencies and civil society were left to deal with this alone. So there was a massive shift and a rethinking, which has actually been quite encouraging over the last few months to change the programs to more remote working, identifying and appreciating the value of these local services that are being given. And, and map action, you know, we've we've gone through the same process there, and we've had to modify our operating procedures and understand the complexity of working under COVID conditions. I don't think there's anything very novel to sort of tell you about it. We've gone through the same amount of COVID tests before you get on a flight, having to have good liaison with the partners to have the right paperwork if we're going to actually visit a, a country that's that's had a disaster, and understanding the rules in all parts of the journey. Because even when you're in transit, sometimes uh, if you don't have the right piece of paper now, uh, you will get turned back. So you know we've got to be much more uh, savvy about that kind of stuff. But once in the field, you know it's, it's keeping those social distancing uh, rules under good consideration and being able to sort of make sure that you're, you're washing your hands and doing all the things that we've learned over this last year are essential. I think that the issue is the link between what we can then deliver on the ground in the few number of cases we did that in the last year or so, and then having a strong remote team who are able to support that team, who are probably even more overwhelmed than usual in the disaster. And I think we've learned a lot about how to deal with that. And there are things like Google Drive and other sharing mechanisms where we can have one place to be coordinating our efforts and being able to deliver something more effective and take the pressure off the team in the field to be able to do the routine mapping for them. Yeah, and, you know, I hate to repeat a cliche, but I think... COVID has caused a re-evaluation in a lot of different industries that even though it, it's been disastrous, it's caused these industries to reevaluate the way they do things and explore remote working. So over the long term, it will have at least some positive benefits in just how certain organizations run and perform their duties going well, into the future. We are back to that thing about being agile enough to respond to the changing conditions. And MapAction has realized that even if vaccination in this country has succeeded in keeping the caseload low, many of the countries where disasters are happening, they're going to be dealing this for many years to come. So we've got to keep on adapting our techniques and our, our services to deal with that. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, COVID, it's it's not a 2021 problem or 2020 problem. It's a problem, as unfortunate as that might be for most of the world. So just trying to draw things to a close. Um, where would you point someone who has real technical skills, but has, they've got no experience volunteering or in the not-for-profit sector? How would you recommend that they leverage these skills to, to make a difference? By looking to map action. We recruit volunteers and have a very diverse pool of volunteers with quite a wide range of backgrounds and traditionally recruit volunteers based on mostly technical skills and just a general interest and enthusiasm about learning more about the humanitarian sector. And as you say, leveraging these skills to make a difference. We have traditionally recruited on a standard GIS profile or a standard GIS skill set but we'll soon be recruiting new volunteers who have skills in data science, data engineering, and design. And we're looking to begin recruitment for this next cycle of volunteers in June. So I would definitely encourage anyone interested to keep an eye on our website around then. So uh, thanks for the time, everyone. I know there's a lot going on, but I really appreciate anyone who can spare an hour out of their day to come on the podcast. So just one more thing before I uh, 
leaves you to get on of those days. If any of our listeners would like to find out more about map action or volunteering, where exactly would you send them? Well, we're on all the usual feeds. So our website is an obvious location to start. That's mapaction.org. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Sign up to our newsletter if you want. Uh, we're on LinkedIn and several other social media feeds. And of course, you know, we are a charity and we do expect, uh, we kind of operate without getting charitable donations. We get a lot of support from the Dutch government, UK government, USA, Germany, and, and other institutional foundations. But if anybody wants to donate to the charity or maybe run a marathon for us, then uh, we'd be very happy to, to take the donations from that. And just generally speaking, I think we'll, we love to continue to network with experts in data science, GIS, and the remote sensing sector to see how new technologies coming on, data sources, new solutions can be applied to these challenging situations that we've been talking about this afternoon. And ultimately, it's by working together across the globe to improve information and data, we can support anyone who's relieving suffering and vulnerability from communities to these uh, global organizations. So right across the whole spectrum. Fantastic. So thanks again for the time both and uh, enjoy the rest of the week and good luck with any of the projects you're working on. Thank you. Thank you.